Well, tonight we're closing out our series called Curious, Engaging Some of Life's Toughest Questions. Uh, it's been a seven-week-long journey together. We started on Easter Sunday, kicked it off, and asked the question, can dead people really come back to life? Moved on and asked the question, did God really write a book? Uh, Steve Clifford asked and answered this question, does God care? And that's one that I'd go back on the podcast and listen to. It's powerful. Jay Kim talked about, uh, is there a heaven and hell? And what, is, what about those two realities that the Bible speaks about? Last week we answered, I think, the most emotionally and politically charged question of our day and most pertinent for the church to answer well. And that was, what would Jesus say to someone gay? And I'd go and check that one out too. Tonight we're closing on a question that's really tag-along to uh, does God care, and so we'll, we'll hit it in a different way. Is the question over and over that was asked by many of you uh, was really about the sovereignty of God, and is God actually in control? Is God really in control? I've had an interesting last uh, few weeks, actually. A week and a half ago Thursday, uh, I, Jenny and I, my wife and I, we spent the evening with a couple in our church, young married couple, they've been married two years, and right before they got married, she was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. Gave her about four to six months to live. She's lived two years, and they just got back from a trip, and the, the doctors said, you know what, we can't do anything more for you. And so just make her comfortable, and you got about a month. And Life's different when you're sitting with someone where death is knocking at the door. The questions you ask and wrestle with, things you say and talk about, it's different. And that question comes up again, is God really in control? Last Sunday, after I got done here at Awakening, I caught a plane flight to Atlanta, Georgia, where I used to live, lived there for three years, and one of the families that was near and dear to our hearts, uh, the Wortman family, they were part of the ministry with us there. Uh, Del Wortman got uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer a few months ago, and he's just quickly deteriorated. My buddy Dennis said, hey man, if you're going to come, you need to come soon. Not sure how long he has. I spent three days with he and his family, and he's got four kids that are oh, about many of your age and between 25 and 18, wrestling with the loss of their father. How do you, well, he's not dead yet, but the soon-to-be loss of their father. And he asked this question, is, is God really in control? And I think the question we're asking is, is actually a little bit different, though, on the intellectual side. And Steve actually spoke to the emotional side. It isn't, is God in control? Because if we start with the, the premise that there, there is a God, the question isn't, is he in control? The question is, how is God in control? And, and that's where we want to talk about tonight. That's where we want to land. We want to ask and answer this question. Though, though we won't fully answer it, I just got to give you a heads up. Theologians throughout the centuries have been wrestling with this question. Many centuries, even longer than that. And so I'm going to present you and just give you three views of how 
God is in control. How people have wrestled and answered that question. How is God actually in control? How does it work? Is he in control? And, and is, does his control allow me to have a choice? It's that tension between God's sovereignty and that if he's all sovereign, does it diminish my ability to choose in humanity's free will? Or does, is, are we so free that it diminishes his sovereignty? And so the question tonight that we're going to ask and answer, and it's going to be, I just got to warn you, it's going to be almost like kind of seminary 101 class, okay? So if you got your notes, open them up, get ready. We're going to dive in. This is going to be a little bit theologic, uh, theology-driven, okay? So if you got your pens out, get ready. Three major views on how God is in control. View number one. On one end of the spectrum of how God is in control, this view uh, would say God is in control like Shakespeare is to Hamlet. God is in control the way sh- in the same way that Shakespeare is to Hamlet, meaning that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, you know? None of the characters in Hamlet said, hey, Bill, I'd like to be a little different, right? They, they didn't have a voice in how to explain, you know, we chose, you know, this narrative, and I'm going to be the crazy king or whatnot. I'd like to be the nice guy. But they didn't get that opportunity. Shakespeare wrote the story. He started and finished it. He wrote it all the way through, and he predetermined along the way, and the characters just simply followed out what he wrote. Some people believe how God is in control is like Shakespeare is to Hamlet. Now, now there's a tradition in the Christian faith that began uh, a number of centuries ago. It's called Calvinism, and they would lean more on this side of the spectrum. This tradition would say that God is in control much of the way Shakespeare is to Hamlet. Uh, it began, Calvinism was begun by uh, the one that's named after, John Calvin. He's a French theologian. He lived from 1509 to 1564. Now the major tenets of Calvinism are, are made in these uh, five points of Calvinism called TULIP. It's this acronym TULIP. And the first one is simply to- is this, total depravity. So if Shakespeare is to Hamlet, he says that in Calvinism, all of humanity is totally depraved. Now, what this means is there's no way that you or I have the ability to actually choose God. We are totally depraved, set, uh, broken apart from God, and cannot actually choose God. He must actually choose us. That's where we get into the next point, unconditional election. Uh, this is that God is actually choosing unconditioned of what you, whether you're going to choose him or not. He just says it's not predetermined on your merit and what you've done. He says, I just chose you and you and you and you and you. And now, and that's, that's what they, we talk about. The Bible says this kind of big theological word, predestination. He predestined and how you unpack that word. And some kind of on the extreme side of Calvinists, or they would be known as hyper-Calvinists, would say there's double predestination. Double predestination that I not only predestined or pre-chose you and you to be saved, I pre-chose you, you, and you to not be saved. And that's on the extreme side. But if you understand the, 
when you're asking and answering this question, how is God in control? Like Shakespeare is the Hamlet, that makes sense, doesn't it? God is writing the story, and he's simply writing it, and we don't necessarily have a choice in it. Therefore, uh, they, they would say there's limited atonement. Atonement is the work that Christ did on the cross. Uh, and limited atonement means that Jesus' death was only efficacious or effective for those he pre-chose to save. So the rest of the people, his death didn't actually pay for. He ju- it just paid for those that he chose to save. Now, there are moderates in Calvinism that would, that would say, we don't hold to that. We're four-pointers. We don't hold to those, uh, all five of those. They would say, we don't hold to limited atonement. Uh, the fourth one is irresistible grace. It means if God chose you, you can't resist it. If he said, I chose to save you and you, that means you can't resist his grace, that you must respond, that you have no choice but to respond to grace. And then finally, in, in Calvinism, uh, they would say perseverance of the saints, that if you were truly saved, you would persevere until the very end. Now, uh, major denominations that would hold to this would be uh, the Reformed movement. You have this neo-Reform movement that's moving along. Uh, many of you kind of heard of the resurgence, and that's connected with all that. Presbyterian would be a part of that. Major uh, pastor that you might know would hold to this view would be a guy named John Piper. And so they would hold to that, that how God is in control is much of the way like Shakespeare is to Hamlet. Now here's the problem. The problem is if God is ultimately the author handwriting every single thing in, that makes him culpable for what? That's exactly right. That means he is the author of evil. See, I remember uh, I was in uh, school at Moody, and I had a, a couple professors that were Calvinists. Now, by the way, Calvinist professors are amazing at theology because they have such a high view of God, and they're great at just keeping this high view of God. Uh, but I remember for this, this being unpacked for the very first time in that extreme way, that if God is in control and he's written the story, it doesn't matter what I do. That means that literally that what I chose to wear today wasn't my choice. I wore, to wear, I wore shorts and sandals, and I've never worn shorts and sandals and taught up here before, and yet here I am, but God predestined me to wear shorts and sandals. It wasn't actually my choice. And I remember, I remember sitting in a class wrestling with this reality If God is the author of evil, I'm not so sure I want to worship him. And if I don't have a choice either way, what difference does it make? Why should I want to try to live a different life? This is actually, this form of thinking caused me, led me down a road of just really questioning faith. Because if if that's the God of the Bible, I really had strong objections. I had to wrestle I had to wrestle deeply. And then the pendulum begins to swing the other way. See, that's one side of the spectrum, and it's God's sovereignty, and yet it diminishes man's free will, humanity's free will to choose. His control is so dominant that humanity doesn't have a choice. And then this pendulum swings all the way over to the other side, and it puts man's free will to the diminish of God's sovereignty. And the picture here, if it's Shakespeare to Hamlet, the picture here is like the president to the United States. 
like the president is to the United States. He has authority, he has a title, but in the everyday life, he makes no decisions really in your life, and even if he wants to get something through, he has to pass it through the House and Congress and all other kinds of things, and it's a really mess, and he can't ever really get a whole lot done anyways, right? And, and so you would go over to the other side and say, you know, humanity has all kinds of choices. God is kind of has the title or the umbrella of control, but really he doesn't have a whole lot of control. The, the tradition that would follow along this line or identify more with this line would be the Armenians. Not to be confused with the people group uh, of Armenia, but Armenians uh, uh, is named after their, the one who started it, Jacob Arminius. Uh, and he was a Dutch theologian born in 1560. Notice that he was born four years before John Calvin died and lived till 1609. And literally, Arminianism is a, a response and a reaction to Calvinism. So Calvinism began to sweep Europe. Jacob is born into this, begins to be taught this, and he says, time out. I, I got some major objections. Brilliant guy. And so then his response is a complete reaction. And so the pendulum swings from God's sovereignty, and we do this. We, we, if you'll just notice and look at history, if we learn from history, we'll see the pendulum just constantly swing back and forth to extremes. And it swings over to this extreme over here, uh, free will, man's free will at the sake of God's sovereignty. Here's what the major tenets of Arminianism is. And in fact, you'll notice that it is a complete reaction to Calvinism. It doesn't even make a nice acronym. (laughs) It's just in going through the five tenets saying, hey, here's what we believe as opposed to what uh, Calvinists believe. The first major tenet is this, human free will. See, that humanity has the ability to actually choose God. You have this ability to respond, that you're not totally depraved, but God in his grace has given you the ability to actually turn to God in and of yourselves. And then it moves on to conditional election. And what this means, if the first unconditional election meant that I, I choose you not based on anything and I just kind of choose, it means that God chooses you because you chose him. It is this idea that even in the foreknowledge of God in eternity past, he sees all time, that his election was ordained based on saying, you know, I see that you were choosing me, and so I chose you. Then you have where they would say, instead of limited atonement, unlimited atonement, that Jesus' death and payment on the cross was efficacious or effective for all of humanity, that his death paid the penalty of sin for all of humanity for all time, not just for a few that they would also believe instead of irresistible grace that you couldn't re- uh, not respond to the prompting of the Spirit and the grace of God. They believe in resistible grace, that you have so much free will that when the Spirit of God begins to prompt and work in your heart, that you can actually resist it. And then finally, they believe instead of perseverance of the saints that you, one truly saved will persevere to the end, that you actually can fall from grace or lose your salvation. What I think is interesting about the last one is, is it's actually just saying the same thing in a different way. The other ones were polar opposites, but think about it. If you go to someone and you're like, well, you know what? They didn't persevere to the end. They weren't really saved. And then you see someone that said, well, they fell from grace. They lost their salvation. It's just different ways of saying the same thing, isn't it? What's interesting here, the problem here is it places all of the weight on man's shoulders. 
places all of the weight on man's shoulders. Uh, the second thing here is it never uh, secure, you're never secure in your salvation. You're never certain. You could always lose it. You're never sure. Did that action change? Wait a second. I'm not really sure. It reminds me of when I was a kid. I don't know. When I was a kid, I I used to pray like multiple times. If any of you like grew up in church or something, maybe you did this too. Uh, But I would pray like over and over and over. Jesus saved me. I'd pray like that whole little sinner's prayer I was taught because I wasn't sure if I was saved and there's never this security. And in this tradition, there are four pointers they, that would, wouldn't hold to falling from grace, but the once saved, always saved. I just think it's interesting that if salvation is a work of God, something that he does that Jesus did on the cross, how could we ever undo what he has done? And so I, there's a problem there. The major denominations is Methodist or Baptist. A notable pastor, evangelist you may know, that would uh, be in this camp would be a guy named Billy Graham. Here's what's interesting. How you answer this question is so important. How you answer the question, how is God in control, will determine how you go about your life. It impacts the way you pray. Think about this. If you believe that God listens and will be moved by what you say and actually change, you pray differently than if you believe that all things are set. If, if you believe that it is up to your responsibility to go out and save others, you'll respond differently than if you think that it doesn't matter how others respond. This irresistible grace. And what you'll note, what you'll note, is in the Calvinist side, you'll see great theologians, deep thinkers, because they have such a high view of God, because what they, how they answer this question determines how they respond and relate to God, and it's actually deep, and it's beautiful, and it's rich. And what you'll notice on the, on the other side is on the other side, you'll see, you'll see great evangelists, because they're, they're, they're passionate about the heart of God and, and seeing people come to know him, and there's an urgency there. And so we see when we answer this question, how is God in control? That some believe that God is in control the way Shakespeare is to Hamlet, some the way the president is to the United States. And one final view, because as I began to wrestle with these, there was always two views, two pendulums, one way over here, one over here, and it's just like, time out. Does the pendulum always have to swing? And I remember hearing a guy named Oz Guinness, a brilliant mind, when asked on this question about uh, the sovereignty of God. And he gave this illustration, and it stuck with me ever since. How is God in control? Could it be that it's possibly like a captain is to an ocean liner? Could it be that God is in control like a captain of a ship in regards to an ocean liner? Uh, that as you're on the ship, you have total freedom on the ship to do and go about wherever you want, but ultimately the captain is in control of guiding the ultimate destination of where that ship is going. See, maybe it's not about resolving the tension of God's sovereignty, his control, resolving the tension between that and man's free will, the ability to choose. Could it be could it be that it's not a tension to resolve, but a tension to embrace? Where we say, yes, 
God is sovereign. Yes, in his sovereignty, he's given humanity free will, and part of that is a great mystery that I do not understand. And rather trying to resolve it and swing into extremes, maybe we could just say it's a tension to embrace. You know, there's an interesting passage in the Bible in Acts chapter 27. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and flip there. Because what I find is, is that even in the narrative, God doesn't seem real concerned to resolve the tension. He doesn't seem real concerned to explain this away, even though theologians have been debating about this. I mean, all the way back to Augustine in 415 AD, and they're arguing about this, and Pelagius, who was this, he was condemned a heretic, is arguing on the free will of man, and they're having all these conversations. In fact, I'd encourage you to read Augustine's on grace and free will. I think it's free on the Kindle if you do that. But we've tried so often to resolve it, but it seems like the Bible's okay with tension. In Acts chapter 27 is this interesting passage. It's Paul. He's on his way to Rome. He's, he's going to be tried before Caesar, uh, and he's, he's a prisoner. And so on his way to Rome, they're making their way by boat there to Italy. And the, as they're traveling, it's getting late in the season, and when it's late in the season, uh, that means it's coming close to winter time, and lots of storms are coming up, and it's unsafe to travel by boat there, and so most of the times you have to hole up in a town and wait until winter's over to start again until you have the good and favorable winds. You don't have the storms and hurricanes that are happening. And as they're doing this, Paul had given them a warning not to keep going on. Hey, guys, it's getting late. We should harbor here. And they said, no, let's try to make it on, and they keep going. Going, and we pick up the story there in uh, verse 20 of ch- chapter 27. And they've been on the ocean for some days. And it says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. They're in a pretty bad spot. Verse 21 After the men had gone long, a long time without food, food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, I love this, you should have taken my advice. <laughs> I love it. I mean, here's like one of the great writers of the, of the New Testament, and he couldn't help but just kind of like put that little jab in there, you know? And uh, you see his humanity there. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. Then you would have been spared yourselves uh, this damage and loss. But, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost and only the ship will be destroyed. <laughs> okay. I guess that's good news. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, listen to what God said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before trial, before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sell with you. This unconditional promise of God, this decree that's saying, don't be afraid, Paul. You are safe, and guess what? everyone with you safe. You got to stand before trial there. And so he says, so keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me, just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So they're, they're going on. They're starting to get bad. Uh, and as it's getting bad, they're beginning to throw the cargo over. Uh, and one particular night, the boats, uh, the sail, uh, lifeboats began to uh, get, almost fall away. And so the sailors 
pulled them back up and they decided, you know what, we're going to get out while we can. And they began to try to leave and just abandon the ship. And notice what Paul says in verse 31. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes and held the lifeboat and let it fall away. In one part, you have the unconditional promise of God. All will be saved. In a second, he said, you know what? God's control, and somehow in there, there's this tension of your choice and how that works together. He says there's this this, this conditional based on whether you stay or not. It seems, seems like there is this tension to embrace that yes, God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he's given you the ability to choose. And it matters. Now here's what I want to say. You can land in any of these three categories and be a devoted follower of Jesus. Here's what I'm not trying to do. I'm not trying to convince you that where I've landed is where you should land. Not by no means. But as you answer this question, let me give you a couple applications to help you steer us to know that we've landed well, to know that you've landed well. And how is God really in control? Uh, The first application is this, simply, God has a plan for your life and you don't want to miss it. My hope and prayer is that that would sink in with some of you for the first time where you would hear that and realize that no matter where your background is, what you've done, God has a plan for your life and you don't want to miss it. I've heard someone say that in life we make our choices and then our choices make us. Or you would say, you know what, you would begin to wake up each day with this reality that God has a plan for your life. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not your calamity to give you a future and a hope that you can miss out on the plans of God for your life. That you would choose to say, God, I long to experience your plan because it's good for my life. Second thing is resolved to be a doer, not a debater of the word of God. Resolve in your heart to be a doer, not a debater of the word of God. James 1, says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. What? Do what it says. See, in this realm, Christians have done this, and it's particularly young Christians that get thinking that it's all about debating. And somehow they think they're actually being active in ministry, and so they spend hours arguing with one another. You know, is this Calvinism? No, it's Arminianism. No, it's this. And we argue and argue and argue, and we post and blog, and somehow we think we're being good Christians because we've debated everything. And it says, guess what? It's great to have discussions. It's great to think deeply. It's great to wrestle with these things. But at the end of the day, do what the Word of God says. There's so much that we don't know and in this area down through the centuries people have been wrestling. There is so much that people have not been wrestling about at all. 
that is clear. They say, okay, you know what? I'm going to resolve in my heart to be a doer and not a debater. See, we do sideline energy and we do the kingdom of God harm because we're moving sideways debating with one another instead of advancing the kingdom of God in love. And would you resolve in your heart, no matter where you land in those three categories, that you're going to be a doer of the word of God? And you just wake up and say, God, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. God, if you show me. That's at the beginning of James where it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when he asks, he should believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a double-minded uh, man, blown and tossed by the waves. You know what a double-minded man is? Literally, it literally means two minds. It means that you say one thing, that do another. You have two minds about you. That you would begin to say, I'm going to have one mind. You want to say, you want to know what it is like to, where God wants to pour his wisdom? is when you say, God, whatever you show me, I'll do. And you mean it and you follow through. He says, that kind of heart, I'm going to give them wisdom in that situation. That kind of heart, I, you, when you do the word of God, when you apply it, it brings you under the blessing of God. Or you would resolve to be a doer, not a debater. Now let me leave you with a question. This question, I think, is one of those that will just propel you forward. It will help you know if you've landed well as you've wrestled with how is God in control. If you landed well, here it is. Does what you know cause your love to grow? Does what you know cause your love to grow? 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Does what you know as you grow in your relationship here, as you come here to awakening, as you dive deeper into his word, when you grow in what you know, is it manifested out towards those around you? Does what you know cause your love to grow. I remember talking with um, a guy, his name's Mike Palumbo. Man, he was just on fire. Came to know Christ in high school. He was my first intern I ever had. This was in Georgia. And, and I mean, he just, in college years, he's just on fire, just, you know, just telling everyone about Jesus. And I mean, a great, great guy. And then in college, he began to get a part of a group uh, that a campus ministry that was really reformed. And I, I noticed a shift in him of just like going out and sharing this lightness that he just became this, this real kind of intense thinker. And it wasn't, it wasn't anything that I just, I just had this for him. He, he's wrestling like, is this a good group for me to be a part of? And I said, Mike, tell you what, here's it simple. You can land anywhere. But do you love Jesus more? And do you, are you in love with what Jesus is doing? Are you in love with the people Jesus is in love with? I mean, at the end of the day, do you love Jesus more? And do you, does your heart break for the things that breaks his heart? It doesn't matter where you land in those categories. That's what's most important. Does what you know cause your love to grow? That's it a question we should be waking up asking today. It's what I know. 
Is it causing my love to grow? Because if it doesn't, it means you've not landed well. How about you? Have you gotten into the rhythm of just learning a lot about God but not really being in love with God? Has he become an intellectual pursuit or at least an idea that's out there instead of the personal God of the universe who longs to be in an engaging relationship with you? I mean, that's the reality, friends, is he loves you. He doesn't want to be an object to you. It's not a checklist. He says, I love you, that, that my knowledge of my wife should cause me to grow in love and of her. I don't... I don't study her and take tests on her. and I want to know more about her because she's just my wife. I love her. How about you? How about you? I was in Georgia this last week with the Wortman family, and on the last day, I knew it was the last time most likely I'd ever see Dale again, the dad. I had about half an hour or so, and so there's some things I wanted to say to him that I wanted him to know before he died. And I really wanted to pray for them, their family. And so we had this sweet moment a few hours before I had to catch a flight back home here. And I remember just sharing with him, one thing that I so wanted to share with him was to make these connections of dots of how God used their family in our family. I wanted to connect the dots of how God was actually sovereign and in control, even when life felt out of control and I couldn't see it. And the fingerprints of God, I could only see in the past. Because our time in Georgia, our last year there was really hard. Our time in Georgia, uh, man, it was hard on my family. It was hard financially. It was hard relationally. We had so many different things. And if you've been around a while, you've heard some of the stories. And I came this close to giving up on ministry and just quitting. Because it's all the ugliness of church when it's run by people that wanted, that are political and it's not about Jesus. But there are two families that loved my family. There's two families that because of the way they loved us, my wife and I are in ministry today and we ended up in San Jose, back home, working for a church called Westgate and eventually launched a church because there's two families seven years ago that loved us based on what they knew. They could have never known the things that were inside our hearts, but God used that. And I remember sitting with Dell, and I wanted him to know that. I wanted him to know before he died, because he would find out after in heaven and he'd hear the whole story, but I wanted to tell him first. I just wanted to say, Dell, you just need to know your life mattered to me. Your life mattered. Your life is echoing, and your family and the way you lived your life is echoing and is impacting the community in San Jose, and you have no idea because of how you loved us seven years ago. Your life mattered. Because you never know the people you run across and how God will want to use you and how he'll want to use you in ways you may never, ever know. You may never know until you get to heaven and hear the stories. 
But if you begin to answer that question, does what I know cause my love to grow? You're going to have stories like Del Wartman. May we be a community that lives out that story, no matter where we land on the question. Let's pray. God, shape us as a community. Shape us to think deeply and to love deeply. To be a people that breaks for the things that break your heart. God, we love you. Will you allow us to take what you've said and respond with joyful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.